This is part two of our two-part lecture on gender. Um, so let's start just by recapping what we were thinking through last time. So I started by trying to summarize what the gender ideologists are saying and the basic point is them distinguishing between sex and gender. Sex is something they Earlier narratives, you can read them to talk about biological sex, increasingly them were wanting to refer to assigned sex, so not any kind of reference to something biological. Um, male, female, but basically sex is about the body. Gender is somehow about what you identify as, something therefore in the mind, the spirit, whatever they understand spirit to be linked with but not exclusively defined by your roles in life um, and how you identify, how you self-identify. Um, and of course, you can't therefore tell someone else what their identity is. It's up for them to decide what their identity is. And so I gave the clarifying example that what's my self-identity, Chevy Cruise, I just feel like a Chevy Cruze. I feel that expresses what I am. I'm just kind of modest, efficient, compact. I, I get to where I'm wanting to go. Um, and that I would expect people when referring to me to not say him or her, but to say room. Yeah. So that there's no limit to what somebody's self-identity can be. And this phrase, it's not binary. So binary, two points, male, female, man, woman, um, it's not binary is saying there's just an infinite number of things you could self-identify as. You noted the distinction between sexuality and orientation. Orientation being about attraction, orientation being who you go to bed with, Sexuality being how, who you go to bed as. Um, again, just all kinds of different permutations being thrown in here. So I noted uh, within this, I said a partially true distinction, but a false separation. So there is something, you know, every heresy has got some truth within it. It is true that gender roles do vary historically and do vary culture to culture. Um, we're going to note um, that article drawing on Edith Stein, where she will she uses this phrase two subspecies, which is a little odd, but she'll say that within the man, the woman, the male, the female, there is kind of a spectrum, but there is a range. It's not totally elastic. Uh, and I think that's a fair observation. So that there is a distinction between gender and sex to some extent, but the notion that they're utterly unrelated, that only makes any sense with some form of extreme dualism between the body and the soul, the spirit, the mind. Any comments, observations since we last went through this?
So I was trying to build a Catholic rebuttal, a Catholic counter-narrative. And the key thing is the unity of the body and soul. So when we're talking with our parishioners, um, when we're talking about someone who has some level of confusion about who they are, that's the key point, the unity of body and soul. I noted the irony of the intersex condition. So you'll often hear people who will talk as if they're being intelligent and say, well, you, you people simplifying everything think it's all just man and woman. There are these people that are intersex, that they, they're, they're not just one or the other. Well, even saying that, though, is rooting it in the body because the intersex condition is something biological. And it is true that there are some people who, in some misdevelopment, whether it's genetic or de developmental in the, in the womb, things aren't normal. Um, but that's true of all kinds of humans with all kinds of different conditions. That doesn't mean that normal doesn't exist. Um, but even for such a person, their question of identity, if it's going to be authentic, is ultimately going to be linked to what their body is rather than just trying to bypass the body and say, well, that's just irrelevant. Um, so, body, unity of body and soul. I was just starting or halfway through this second point about the image of God being male and female, this being part of the Creator's plan. Um, and I was with that drawing on various authors building in part on what John Paul II's analysis in this regard would be. So what page was that that we were on? Um, so I think page nine. Oops. Nine of my lecture notes. So I did already go through some of this page. Um, in fact, yeah, all, all of this page, but we didn't continue it over. So just briefly, I said there's an inherent individualism in gender ideology, if you completely define for yourself what you are, your identity, then it doesn't have any inherent ordering to others. Whereas actually part of our sexuality does configure, even before we choose it, anything in it, configure how we're going to relate to others. Whereas if I make my identity Chevy Cruz, it makes me utterly disconnected from reality and from other people. So I noted that the image of God, we're made in the image of God, the image of God is relational, not individualistic. Um, and that part of that being relational is configured in us at a biological level in our sexuality, that that configures how we relate to others in the human race. I relate to women in a certain way, I relate to men in a certain way. This is something relational. I'm in the image of God who is relational, configured into the very structure of my being. And isn't just for me to decide. Okay, so page 10. I didn't get on to here. 
So here I am in my footnotes. This is all quoting from John Paul II, different audiences, different bits of his theology, the body. Um, but him saying at the top of the page there, masculinity and femininity express the dual aspects of man's somatic constitution. So at, at a bodily level, what am I? Male, female, masculine, feminine. But um, that each gender reflects God's generativity differently. So that the mother generates within herself, the father generates outside the self. This shared parenthood has different dynamics, biologically, psychically, intellectually, spiritually. I'm going to kind of come back to that a bit more when we summarize Edith Stein. Um, Now I say, in summary, the human person is inherently relational. The human person is defined by his capacity to relate to others. And the human person does not choose to create his relationality. It comes with his nature. Because otherwise, you know, with this whole thing, you could self-identify as something that doesn't relate to others. And I note that um, all of the above page and a half, I've been kind of summarizing aspects of the significance of the image of God that we can see in 20th century resourcement theology, including the renewed Thomistic theology, Vatican II's Gaudium et Spes, and John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Then lastly, I note with this section a, a clarification in terms of the image of God thing. Um, so the human person is in God's image and that male and female together image God in their maleness and femaleness. But God is not in man's image or in woman's image. Uh, Phil, can you read that quotation from the Catechism? In no way is God in man's image. Okay. So all of that's trying to point out that this, among the things in our Catholic perspective, the image of God is one of the pivotal things to be drawing on theologically. Got two other points that are less direct, but nonetheless significant. One, the third is accepting creation as given, and the other is just kind of a general understanding of the dignity of the person and the body. So point three, accepting creation as given, rather than viewing ourselves as self-created. Um, so given, it is to be accepted with gratitude. You don't choose your gift, rather you receive it. Um, and I draw next there, thinking of this in the context of environmental ethics. I uh, say so recent popes have spoken about the need to respect creation, respect nature, and learn from it, not merely impose ourselves on it. Christopher, can you read 
um, oh, not yet, sorry. Gender ideology, I say, is one example of humanity imposing itself on the environment rather than learning from nature and accepting nature. Then I have a quotation from Pope Francis there. Christopher, could you read that for us? So, you know, Pope Francis' general take on the environment is ideologically the modern mind is just imposing itself on reality, on nature, and also therefore the environment, rather than in all of those things seeking to learn from them something that tells us something about ourselves. Um, couple quotes from the Catechism in that regard. Uh, David, can you read the first? Every one man and woman should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. Physical, moral, and spiritual difference and complementarity are oriented toward the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. The harmony of the couple and of society depends in part on the way in which the complementarity, needs, and mutual support between the sexes are lived out. Tyler, the next one. By creating human being, man and woman, God gives personal dignity equally to the one and the other. Each of them, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept the sexual And the SCDF, you know, the before the CDF existed, it was the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, said there can be no true promotion of man's dignity unless the essential order of his nature is respected. And then lastly, the compendium of the social doctrine of the church. Um, Michael, could you read that quote for us? Faced with theories that consider gender identity as merely the cultural and social, social product of the interaction between the community and the individual, independent of personal sexual identity, without any reference to the true meaning of sexuality, the church does not tire of repeating her teaching. Everyone, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. Physical, moral, and spiritual difference and complementarities are oriented towards the goods of marriage and the flourishing of family life. According to this perspective, it is obligatory that positive law be conformed to the natural law, according to which sexual identity is indispensable, because it is the objective condition for forming a couple in marriage. So the basic point on that page, creation is a given, your body is a given, your nature is a given. To be fulfilled, to know how to live, you need to receive that and live with what you've, been, you've received. Not just view your identity as something, some random quest for you to figure out or create for yourself. Yeah. So for people who are intersex or born with those conditions, how do they come to well, how do they first know, like, know their sexual identity? I don't know enough about the condition to know exactly when. And of course, there's different variations. On yeah, that. indeed, indeed. Um, part of it would be recognizing that there's something wounded in their nature. Um, there'd be a very, very small number of people who aren't man and woman 
man or woman, uh, even if there's something not quite complete. Um, but for such a person, they would be receiving the fact that they have a wounded nature. And we all have a wounded nature in different ways. Theirs, tragically, is wounded in something very significant. Yeah. Now, so like, somebody who's intersex, to they probably can't get married, right? I mean, that's, I mean, at least in the more extreme cases, right? In more, yes, right, yeah. right. So can they, can they like enter religious life? I don't know, what's the, or is that canon law? Yeah, that's a canon law question, I don't know. Um, and there would be, there would be a spectrum. So if you can't perform the marriage act, your marriage could never be consummated. Um, if you're not biologically intact, you know, the new PPF now specifies that's one of the things that has to be examined in seminarian candidates. Um, for all of these sets of reasons, lest a woman self-identify, you know, all those collegians who don't have beards that... <laughs> um, sorry, what was the question? Or is that... It's just like, how do you pastorally work with these people, like, what is, like, how do you direct them in what their vocation would be, like, that just seems like that would be something very difficult. It would be very difficult, and I'll have to admit, I've not actually pastorally dealt with questions of orientation and confusion in that regard are much more common, uh, and I've dealt with in the parish context, I've not come across this, um, I know brother priests who have, um, yeah, and it's not easy. Um, this is like a, you can't get married, you can't enter priesthood or religious life, like what? Consecr I, but it's, it, I, that would be really hard. I don't know. Yeah. But that would be true of many other conditions yeah. as well. So you could have all kinds of, you, your sexuality could be fully intact, but still you would be physically not capable of the demands of the priesthood and the rigors of religious life. Um, and those are tough conversations to have with someone who somehow feels cold um, and you have to say, well, you're just not capable of doing the job. Um, back to the thought of receiving yourself as given what would that mean as an answer to Michael's query? Though it differs because they are 
taste of it. So, depends on how we respond and how we receive. So it's, um, I think we'd also need to say that your fulfillment, your happiness, your purpose in life, you do still have all those things. Even though your sexuality, your body is deeply wounded, God still has a plan for you, that there is still a way in which in following him you will be happy, you will be fulfilled. But that won't happen if you try and ignore, bypass the reality of what you are even when that accepting that reality, receiving it, is very difficult. The general significance of this category of treasures, the third point, accepting creation is given. You see the basic point here and just how different that is from the modern mindset. You know, whether we're looking to Sartre or, or who in terms of the notion that you create for yourself what your meaning, purpose, whatever is, there's an awful lot of that in the modern mindset. That kind of in many ways can comfortably fit with the whole gender ideology. Whereas accepting creation as given that it's not for me to decide my purpose in life. It's not for me to decide what is the meaning of life. That's a whole different way of approaching everything. Um, yeah. I think uh, maybe later on with Jesus Stein and John Paul II talking about uh, it's not a, a binary a man, a male is this, female is this, or they act in certain ways, but there's some overlap in, you know, a male does have masculinity and femininity, but to certain degrees. And so I think that might help um, to, to answer, to uh, maybe not focus on the question of, is this person male or female? I'm not just solely acting as completely masculine person, but there are feminine aspects to the person. And I think that's maybe where the thought often is, well, because the bits are a certain way, then we have to act a certain way. Mm. And conversely, if I've got a compassionate side, then maybe my true identity is, is a woman. Um, and that just doesn't follow. Okay, we're, we'll come back to that more in a bit. Okay, over the page, page four, the dignity of the human person. And I was just rereading my notes thinking, in a sense, I could have titled this page the dignity of the human body, but really wanted to make the point that there's an awful loss in how the body and the person is treated here that doesn't really see a dignity in it, which kind of does link with the givenness, the receiveness. So I say here, 
Contrary to a vision of the human person that treats the body as an irrelevance to be mutilated and altered, and gender as a toy to be played with, the concept of the dignity of the human person plays an important, if less specific, role in these debates. Then I've got a few things I've quoted drawing from a number of different sources of different things people have said, well, this is kind of a bit relevant in this. None of these are a single thing, but they're all in the background of recognising the dignity of, of the person and in a way that is incompatible with the randomness of gender ideology. So I say first, man and woman is about mutual self-giving, mirroring the self-giving of Christ and the church, imaging the perfect, reci perfect reciprocal gift of self in the Trinity itself. I say mutual self-mastery versus self-satisfaction. That contrary to a world dominated by lust and defined by unfettered sexual desire, um, we talk about self-mastery. Um, so the principle, no one can give what they do not have. So you can't give yourself to another unless you possess yourself, unless you have mastery of yourself. Um, that doesn't really fit into the whole self-identity kind of in a self-orientation kind of way. Reiterating a similar point to before, self-mastery versus dominating nature. So rather than dominating nature, I'm going to dominate, master myself. So mastering ourself and accepting our biological identity means we don't resort to dominating and self-inventing nature. And I note a parallel issue with contraception. Phil, could you read that quote for us? So this is from John Paul II. The problem consists... Yes. Sorry. The problem consists in maintaining the adequate relationship between that which is defined as domination of the forces of nature and self-mastery, which is indispensable for the human person. So... Yeah, so that's just where that he said that in being indicated. Um, so what I'm trying to indicate there is the whole contraceptive mentality is another example of dominating nature rather than seeking to learn from it. Um, and again, this whole gender ideology isn't seeking to learn from nature, just impose ourselves, dominate it. And then kind of also indirect but an articulation of a very different starting point, personalism. So in contrast to a mere animal desire, personalism says that man is not just an animal, not just to be ruled by lust. And in contrast to the mere individualism of today, personalism um, says, David, could you read that quote for us? So this is John Paul II. Continuing this line of thought, we also come upon the antithesis between individualism and personalism. Love, the civilization of love, is bound up with personalism. Why with personalism? Why does individualism threaten the civilization of love? We find a key to answering this in the Council's expression, a sincere gift. Individualism presupposes a use of freedom in which the subject does what he wants. 
in which he himself is the one to establish the truth of whatever he finds pleasing or useful. He does not tolerate the fact that someone else wants or demands something from him in the name of an objective truth. He does not want to give to another on the basis of truth. He does not want to become a sincere gift. Individualism thus remains egocentric and selfish. The real antithesis between individualism and personalism emerges not only on the level of theory, but even more on that of ethos. The ethos of personalism is altruistic. It moves the person to become a gift for others and to discover joy in giving himself. This is the joy about which Christ speaks. So a series of points on that page, all of which on one level aren't directly about gender ideology, but they're all articulating something, whereas if that's your starting point, you're just not going to run with these kinds of self-obsessions. Um, okay, the remaining pages of my notes, I'm summarizing um, a few different articles that are on your bibliography. Um, so I asked you to read an article by Holloway and um, Alan. Um, but before we go through that, there's an article I haven't required you to read, but you can follow a whole bunch of footnotes on page 13, basically what I'm summarizing here. And I just want to summarize what St. Augustine says on sexual differentiation. So sexual differentiation, that we are differentiated into male, female, man, woman. And I say prefiguring modern science's view that sexual differentiation is for the purpose of reproduction. So there's all kinds of things in modern science that look at us from an evolutionary perspective and say, well, what purpose is sexuality? You know, not all creatures are gendered. Um, what purpose does it serve? It's about reproduction. Now I note there, pre-Augustine, some of the early fathers had this rather weird notion that they viewed andro androgyny as the condition of the first man and sexual distinction as a consequence of original sin. Whereas in contrast, post-Augustine, although the issue is rarely examined explicitly, when it is referred to, Augustine's views are followed. And basically Augustine says, the differentiation of male and female, man and woman, was part of God's plan to raise up new children, new people for the city of God. So a series of quotes here from the city of God. So the purpose of sexual differentiation the purpose of God's creation is to raise up people who will dwell with him eternally. To populate this city, the two protological humans needed to reproduce. The coupling of male and female is the seedbed, as it were, of a city. Augustine's theorizing about sexual difference and marriage begins on the premise that these things were always supposed to be a cornerstone, not for the human species in general, but human social life in its primordial ecclesial form. Being in the flesh and male and female is not a curse, for it pertains to creation's original goodness. The 
procreation of children pertains to the glory of marriage, not to the punishment of sin. So note the importance of sexual distinction with identity. So Augustine's saying, nothing pertains more closely to a body than its sex. Bodies are not an ornament or a garment, but belong to the very nature of man. Spiritual flesh is not spiritual because it is incorporeal, but because it serves the spirit. You know, St. Paul uses this phrase, the spiritual body. And then Augustine says, sexual difference will continue in heaven. He then who instituted two sexes will restore them both in the bodily resurrection. The sex of a woman is not a vice, but nature, and so it will continue in heaven. Though in heaven, he says, the bodies will be better than here. Then the article from Robert says, Augustine does not believe that human nature is essentially neutral or masculine. There are generally two sexes in God's created order. So to just pause that notion, even in heaven, the resurrected body, you will be male or female. It's part of what you are. Augustine's, as it quoted there, nothing pertains to the body more closely um, than your sex. So how do you reconcile that with St. Paul, who says in heaven there aren't male or female slaves or Greek? And that's pretty much the opposite, right? Like, it makes sense that we have the bodies, and, but, but I think his point is that there isn't distinction, St. Paul. I think he's making just an utterly different point. So to read in the same way that there's not Greek or Jew, but you don't cease to be what you are. It's just all those distinctions of value, hierarchy, and whatever will... So I think he's just making an utterly different point in that, context, in that passage. That would be my response. And I think, following I guess, I don't think you could be who you are without having the same gender sexuality that you've had in this world, even though the relevance of much of that would somehow be utterly transformed, that the glorified body will be very different, but it will still be me. And part of what I am is, is my sex, my gender. Brief aside, because this is relevant to sexuality in general in this course. I say, in Eden, and here I'm quoting this article, before sin, Augustine speculates that man and woman would have used their sexual organs for coitus under the governance of an ordered love and rational will. As every aspect of their lives would have been ordered to the love of God, their sexuality would be no different. Sex would be for its natural created purposes of populating the heavenly city. In this hypothesis, when the time came to procreate, Adam and Eve could have employed their genitals with the same freedom of will with which we now move our other limbs. 
We move our hands and feet to perform their tasks when we so will, without any conflicts, and with all the ease with which we observe in ourselves and others. Why then, with respect to the procreation of children, should we not believe that the sexual organs could have been as obedient to the will of mankind as the other members are, before the fall, before the confusion brought into our functioning by concupiscence? Much you might say that for the animal kingdom, they only copulate when it's the season when they're wanting children, the time's right, it serves its function. Um, we can think of swans, where it is a bonding thing between the two of them, but only at that time of the year when the time's right for reproduction as well but it has a lasting bonding significance in how it binds the two of them together in general. Okay, any comments on Augustine there? So the relevance here, what is the purpose of sex, the purpose of sexuality, reproduction, um, Therefore, when we want to understand what is a man, what is a woman, that's the thing in the background behind everything. Briefly, page 14. Um, so I asked you to read the article on Holloway. Sh shall we leap to a discussion of it rather than me read through the summary? Are we okay with that? Uh, so did you grasp his basic point? So in, in his vision, what he's articulating, uh, you know the distinction between what's called the Scotus and the Thomist view of the purpose of the incarnation? So Thomas says the incarnation only happened because of sin. If it wasn't for sin, the incarnation wouldn't have been necessary. Don Scotus conversely argues that um, there's so much done in the incarnation that that achievement, that completion of creation in the incarnation was part of the Lord's plan from the beginning and everything that's achieved on the cross and so forth, that's all needed because of sin but Christ would have come anyway. And so that's the school Holloway's following. And Holloway's basically arguing that in order for God to become flesh, to take a human nature, there has to be something in the structuring of how humans reproduce to enable a vehicle for the Almighty, the Creator, to enter his creation. And so the receptivity of the woman and her womb is all designed around the ultimate purpose of the incarnation um, for there to be a mechanism for that to happen. And that a new human life happens with two persons cooperating. Therefore, God and the woman is two the receptivity there. If 
she could just reproduce asexually, there'd be no physical mechanism where it would be apt, appropriate, fitting for God to kind of contribute. Did you pick up that's what Holloway was arguing, claiming? No. I was very confused. <laughs> okay. Confused because there was just a lot of other things in there, or? It seemed like he was all over the place. Yeah, I, I knew him. He spoke all over the place <laughs> as well. Um, I thought that maybe just me. Yeah, no, I was, I was like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. <laughs> He is articulating, among other things with this, a vision of the purpose of sexuality, therefore the significance of gender. Um, he follows a basically uh, Augustinian approach in terms of the role of the two genders, that therefore the woman, what is she about? She's about receptivity. Um, the man is about initiating, determining, in the way that the Father God is in the Incarnation. Any comments there? As a distinction of male and female, does that seem coherent. If you turn to page 14 of my notes, halfway down the page, I have a little subsection where th there's in bold there, females are, males are. Are you with me on the page? Just read through what I've said there, and this is summarizing what he says. He says, females are receptive and nurturing, as befits a sex destined to receive the Creator. Males are initiating and providing, complementing what the female role requires. The role of father as protector, guardian and provider of the family and the life of the womb. The ultimate meaning of gender, i.e. sexual differentiation, he says is thus to be found in theology and is specific for the incarnation of Christ. Does that satisfy as a description of maleness and femaleness? You know, within Christian writings, there's a general agreement that there is such a thing as male and female. There is such a thing as masculinity and femininity. But when you say exactly what is it, it is much more difficult to say it's this and only this. Um, it's real, 
and the struggle to articulate it could make it seem like it's not real. But there are lots of things that even though they're real, just aren't capable of a single word description summary. It seems like it's like a lot of smaller things that each on their own maybe isn't a big deal, but when you have all of them together. In terms of what makes a man and a woman, or yeah. femininity and masculinity? Yeah. Like there's some bigger things here, but I think a lot of it is just a lot of little things that on their own maybe are don't seem that noticeable. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's. I'm gonna. This, I'm gonna actually read through my summary of Stein on page sixteen and seventeen, and then we can discuss it. Um, okay, so. Edith Stein, uh, here I'm summarizing Prudence Allen's article, um, or, or the part of the article that's on Stein. So just to recall, Edith Stein, 1892 to 1942. And I note that Stein rejects the notion of the weaker sex or even the fair sex. Um, and yeah, she was a strong woman who died uh, as a martyr, so um, not the weaker sex. I say a distinction but not a separation. So I say Alan accepts with some reservations a distinction between sex as a biological term and gender as the psychological aspect of human identity. Okay, so feminine and masculine, their identity defined with respect to the body. Um, Daniel, could you read that first quotation? The particular the particular structure of the female body makes it oriented towards supporting new life growing in, within during pregnancy. This characteristic becomes the fundamental axis of even Stein's theory of women's identity. And then Phil, could you read the next quotation? Scientific analysis fully confirms that the very physical constitution of woman of women is naturally disposed to mother conception, pregnancy, and human birth, which is a consequence of a marriage union with a method of the man. At the same time, this also corresponds to the psycho-physical structure of woman. Motherhood is linked to the personal structure of, of the woman and to the personal dimension of the gift. I have brought a man into being with the help of the Lord. Uh, the Creator grants the parents the gift of a child. On the woman's part, this fact is linked in a special way to a sincere gift of self. Actually, sorry, that was a quote from John Paul II, but in that article. So not that isn't a quote from okay. um, Stein. The next is, though, um, Alan's summary of Stein. Um, Christopher, could you read that next quote, A Man's Identity? A man's identity constrains a similar kind of unity. Detachment of seed and reproductive function in the male is a corporeal structure that gives a natural tendency in the male towards similar psychic, intellectual, and spiritual orientation towards detachment. Okay, and then I love tidy tables. Um, so I've created a table here. The first two rows are from, uh, no, so actually, yeah, almost all of this is from Alan's summary. So first, the female structure. The soul is more intensely connected 
to all the parts of the body. So female about connection. The body structure is oriented towards supporting growth of new life within a mother, whereas the male, the soul is more detached from the parts of the body. The body structure is oriented towards reproducing by detachment of seed as father. The feminine structure receives so that's a, receives the word that must be inwardly through emotions. No, receives the world. Yes, yeah, so the outside world is received inwardly through emotions and more affected, affected inwardly by the lived experience of the body. The intellect judges the world received emotionally through comprehension of value of existence uh, in its totality. And the will emphasizes personal and holistic choices. Whereas the masculine structure receives the world through the intellect and is less affected by the lived experience of the body. The intellect judges the world received intellectually in a compartmentalized way. And the will emphasizes exterior specialized choices. And then I quote Alan in the next box, by feminine ethos, she means the tendency to look towards the holistic, to be concerned with the development of people, to practice empathy as a genuine ground for intersubjectivity and so forth. Uh, comments on that as a description of the male and female structure. There is a kind of pretty obvious continuity of Augustine and Holloway. There's similar things being said. I think uh, I like her distinction um, using the word detachment for the male um, and how it is so much easier it would seem for most males to be detached from relationship with more hermits or people on their own would be male um, rather than female. Or if you, if you look at Buddhism, those who, are, those who are willing to detach themselves completely are more likely male than female because the female has a child. Well, how do you completely detach yourself from a child? It's mm -hmm. from the motherly instinct that's much more that detachment idea for me, I like that she used it. Detachment, compartmentalizing as the masculine, the holistic, um, the inward, um, the emotional, affective, being feminine. Again, it doesn't seem to fully encompass everything that we'd want to say about male and female. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, she was pretty uh, right on about the feminine structure. It's not a masculine structure. I remember listening to a comedian a couple of years ago who just kind of uh, described a woman's mind as like a giant ball of wire where everything's connected to everything else and all, this, you know, all everything at once 
and the guy's mind is like a series of boxes, and you take out one box at a time, and you focus on only what is in that box, and then you put the box back. Mm-hmm. It's not allowed to touch the other box. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Lucas, Lucas eats. <laughs> Just one thing at a time. We're all together. <laughs> but I do wonder, I'm trying to conceptualize what she means by in the female male structure. For the females, the soul is more intensely connected to all parts of the body. I'm wondering like, how she could know that or what that, like, conceptually even means if the soul is the form of the body and the animating principle of the body has all the faculties, how exactly that, like concretely what that means. On a very basic level, I'm just being like, if a guy loses his hand, he's like, oh, well, that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, we wouldn't say that, right? Yeah. And maybe when she's using the word Um, maybe in that context she's not using the word soul in a very theologically precise sense but a kind of spirit that the spirit is more holistic integrating connected to everything because obviously at its philosophical theologically precise sense the male soul is through the whole body it's not just in my brain it's not just in my heart it's the form of the whole body, as truly for the man as for the woman. So maybe what she's saying, she's got to really mean the spirit somehow. Can you elaborate on that? I'm speculating about what she means, so not really. Um, So I suppose what I'm saying is on one level, she can't really mean the soul. I don't think that can be what she means, but there's something about the spiritual in the woman that is more holistic versus the man being somehow detached and compartmentalized. But what does that, sorry, what does that mean with respect to like the parts of the body phrase? Like I get the compartmentalized, holistic, yeah, but the what does it mean to be more or less connected to all parts of the body? Right? I still feel that as well. I'm not sure either, if I'm honest. Um, it's just that first statement, soul is more detached from the parts of the body that she's thinking about. I'm not sure I could buy that, because uh, I know that's the way contemporary man acts, but that's part of the problem in society, is... Uh, because he's supposed, even in spirit, he's supposed to be life-giving. Yeah. Uh, and he's not being, which is part of what's wrong with, you know, mm. uh, a break in, in uh, the world today of uh, society is that man is not being uh, provider, protector, and leader that he's supposed to be, which is connected to his uh, life-giving nature, which is written in his anatomy. So, um, so his, uh, his spiritual... Itself is supposed to be the same as his body. So. Could, could we invite Mr. Dr. Call to come in and maybe help us think through this? Because I think he's a woman at this point. 
Right, nice thought. Okay, let's move on to the second page of my summary, so page 13. Um, so, the article here is summarizing Hildegard rather than um, Stein. She refers to the genders as mirroring each other so that together they are complete. Um, Christopher, can you read that quote? So this is... Man and woman are in this way so involved with each other that one of them is the work of the other. Without woman, man cannot be called man. Without man, woman cannot be named woman. Okay, the next section here. Now, curiously, some of you have indicated you like this thought. I found this the most problematic part of the article. Masculine and feminine characteristics mixed. So, I say, an, any individual has a mix of masculine and feminine characteristics, which obviously is true. But this does not deny a rooting of masculine and female in nature. So, in this approach, natural characteristics come from nature, and socialized characteristics come from socialization. For example, a female has a more natural relation to the feminine and a more socialized aspect to masculine characteristics and vice versa in the male. Any individual, man or woman, is called to develop some characteristics of both male and female, to become fully human through an integration of masculine and feminine characteristics. Then quoting... Christ embodies the ideal of human perfection. In him, all bias and defects are removed, and the masculine and feminine virtues are united and their weakness redeemed. Um, yeah. Next quote, again, direct from Stein. God created humanity as man and woman. He created both according to his own image. Only the developed masculine and feminine nature can yield the highest attainable likeness to God. Then note, Stein rejects fractional sex complementarity that would see each sex only developing the characteristics typical of it, i.e. the male or the female, so that each sex only held a fraction of the whole. Rather, each individual develops both characteristics and there's not a rigid identification of male-female man and female-feminine woman. Now, I pose a question. I say, was Stein influenced by Carl Jung's model of the androgynous ideal? I think that's where her... This sounds very similar to Jung to me. Allen suggests that Stein argued for this to defend male, female dignity, but that Stein might have found a different solution had she lived to see John Paul II articulate equal feminine dignity in complementarity and difference, rather than implicitly having women become more like men in order to have dignity. So nonetheless, we should note that she definitely departs from Jung's androgynous ideal by her saying that each sex develops the other's characteristics in a distinct manner and only within certain limits given biologically. Do you see the question I'm raising here? Or are you familiar with... 
So when I was young, it was very fashionable. Jung was somehow much more in fashion psychologically, even in Catholic circles. And in Jung, you'd be repeatedly being told, well, you need to develop the feminine within you. Um, and, you know, so a lot of the kind of toxic masculinity approach develop the feminine within you rather than seek to be authentically male but not in a but yeah not in a but that, that doesn't mean aggression and carelessness and brutality are somehow good things um, that Jung's approach was you develop both characteristics um, and that was very fashionable when I was young. I hear that language a lot less now. And I, I think that's part of what was influencing her. And yeah. So my understanding as I was reading this was more of like, men and women are empathetic, but a larger percentage of women are more empathetic than a larger percentage of men. So there are some men who are very, very empathetic and more empathetic than some women. But on the whole, women are more empathetic than men. That's kind of how I was taking the men and women have the same thing, but to a different degree. Yeah. And that certainly is unarguable, yeah, that what you're saying just simply is the case. Um, and that doesn't make the more empathetic man not a man just because he's empathetic. But that it just is a more feminine trait. Or more typically feminine, more typically tra right. feminine trait. So yeah. we might categorize that as a feminine trait, however it would still be in, a, in the masculine. If we're if we're putting them into categories mm -hmm. as Edith Stein would. Mm -hmm. A really good father can be nurturing, but it doesn't happen as naturally as it does with the mother. Just the woman can be strong and defend her child when, uh, when the occasion rises, but not very natural role to be a defender and protector of the child. And that brings up the question, like, are these traits uh, just traits in and of themselves and men and women have them at different percentages, or are a, is there a um, specific, like, masculine empathy would inherently look different from feminine empathy uh, in some way? So it's not just like, Because that does often seem to be the case, that even when both are being empathetic, a man somehow does do that differently. Um, let me know over the, page 18, I summarize, um, let me read through the section. So see the section halfway down where I say two subspecies within the species. So differences male, female, are not accidental but essential in the entire structure. Whereas accidents like hair color are not part of the definition of a human, 
Gender is part of the definition of a human. Quoting Stein, there is a difference not only in body structure and in particular physiological functions, but also in the entire corporeal life. The relation of soul to body differ in their psychic life as well as of the spiritual faculties to each other. So Stein says, male and female are subspecies within the single human species. This explains the permanence of difference between men and women. There is a different interior structure to each. And then directly quoting Alan, his summary of her, the inner form which determines structure or soul in woman is different from the inner form or soul in man, not in respect to their equal participation in the human species, but in their participation in a complement subspecies. Then continuing his summary, nonetheless, individuals can, within certain limits given biologically, freely choose to develop characteristics associated with the other gender. And then quoting Stein, there is no profession which cannot be practiced by a woman. So summarizing observations at this point. So we have two subspecies that are different. I think it was said that at the level of soul, that the soul is different in a man and a woman. Both of the human species, um, typical, different typical characteristics, but within certain limits, the male can develop female characteristics and within certain limits, the female can develop male characteristics. Um, the question I have is then, um, how is it that the soul having a priority here would then influence the X, Y, and XX of the, because uh, if the soul is the form of the body, it has some priorness to it, not be in time, but there is a priorness. But how does that uh, the physicalness of the body itself influenced by the soul? Or in her view, is it is it not? Or she doesn't even comment maybe on that question. So so you're thinking it might be prior to the Yeah, um, or that she wasn't scientific enough to be thinking it through in terms of the question of genetics. So your question is, I have a male soul. Is it my soul influencing the development of my XX, XY chromosome? Electricity. Yeah. 
and you read the articles, so there's brief articles from Ethics and Medics on the question of whether the soul's gendered. So there's a serious theological problem on one level. If the soul is gendered, women are not saved because Christ did not assume a female soul. Yeah, so there's a big thing you need to be very careful in what you're, you're saying there. Um, but it's also true the soul is the body-soul unity any particular soul is configured for a particular body so despite what we see in science fiction uh, you can't pluck one mind soul and put it into another body your soul is configured to your body um, now and in eternity therefore my particular soul is configured to a male body so the soul i would summarize isn't gendered in itself but it is unique and exists for a male gendered body so in that sense the soul gender isn't irrelevant to the soul but that the gender comes from the male the bodily dimension rather than the soul itself. Thus, Christ assuming one human soul saves both male and female. I also remember in those articles that uh, he mentioned something about yeah, the soul not being gendered, but uh, when it's sounding like he is approaching what we talk about with the baptismal seal and the seal of confirmation and holy orders that leaves an imprint or a character in the soul uh, that remains with it forever. Is it, I don't even know if the church really ever defined exactly what that seal consists of, what the same. It's a thing that the sacrament does to it and it stays moving on. <laughs> it just seems like a... Any other comments in this regard? The gender of the soul question? Yeah, I mean, it seems like having two different subspecies is very problematic with salvation and stuff. Like, that seems too extreme. Mm -hmm. Even to say that gender isn't something, or to say it's something substantial, because then you have men and women are two like, unrelated. Like, you, you can't draw that sharp of a distinction. So it has to be something on the level of accidents, not substance. I think we, when we talked about this in uh, some class, and it was like an essential accident or something like that. Right. But it, yeah, to say it's, to go for, so far as to say substance. Yeah, I'd throw in it maybe as a final thought, bearing in mind, you know, there's a whole era of theology where scholasticism and St. Thomas, we'd move beyond that. And so we weren't wanting to limit ourselves to precise uses of terms. Um, 
and so lots of good theology you've got to ask are they using these terms as precisely as the tradition has previously and we might well say has come to again um, so is what we're picking up with Stein's use of the word soul just because she's using it in a rather fluid sense rather than using it in an erroneous sense Okay, let me pull things together in summary here, conclusion. So um, the other pages there, there's a summary also of Carter Griffin's article um, that we're not going to use in the course this year. Um, his book on celibacy uh, and fatherhood, uh, I hope many of you have read, it's a great book. Um, indirectly refers to referring to spiritual fatherhood the questions here so what have we said gender ideology separates sex from gender says that the body and the mind spirit soul don't have an inherent relationship the catholic understanding the rational understanding dare we say is that actually your body matters your soul, your identity uh, is linked with your body. You cannot just ignore it. Your happiness, your fulfillment, your purpose in life will only be found by recognizing what your body is, even if your particular body um, is wounded in some way. Okay, let's close in prayer. Then the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.